Welcome to Peacemaking in Paris, presented by Professor Sir Hugh Strawn for UCL Institute of Education. This series marks the centenary of the Peace Conference in 1919, when the United States and Allied powers met in Paris to decide the terms of the peace settlements with the defeated Central Powers. I'm Simon Bendry, Director of UCL Institute of Education's First World War Centenary Battlefield Tours programme. In an earlier podcast series, From Amiens to Armistice, Sir Hugh looked at the sequence of Allied victories from the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August 1918 to the armistice negotiated by Germany on the 11th of November 1918. In Peacemaking in Paris, he reflects on the peace conference and its legacy. In this podcast, he considers President Wilson's principle of national self-determination, one of Wilson's 14 points for an enduring peace, and the challenges its implementation presented for the peacemakers in Paris. The story of how Eastern Europe was settled after the First World War begins with the Russian Revolution of 1917. The fact that there were two changes of regime in Russia during the course of 1917, the first after the March 1917 revolution with the establishment of the provisional government, and the second more fundamental revolution in November 1917 when the Bolsheviks took control, created an opportunity for those peoples in Western Russia who aspired to their independence to stake their claim from the Baltic states, Estonia, Lithuania, Finland, through Central Europe to Poland and Ukraine, there were now opportunities for peoples that had been subject to Russian rule maybe for centuries to become independent. On their seizure of power, the Bolsheviks immediately sought peace with Germany. Without peace, they felt they could not deliver the essential conditions for the revolution. That was the distribution of food, bread, as they put it, and of land, above all, to the peasantry of Russia. The Germans responded with a readiness to negotiate, but with demands for terms which, in Russian eyes, were exorbitant. From the start of 1918, right through to the summer of the same year, the Germans are continuing their advance. Periodically, it's halted while negotiations are resumed, but even after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was finally signed at the beginning of March 1918, the Germans continued their advance eastwards. And as a result, the countries that aspired to independence achieved that freedom very largely thanks to the support and backing of the Germans themselves. Under the terms of Brest-Litovsk, the Russians ceded control of Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, and ultimately Finland. Germany, from an early stage in the First World War, had posed as the potential liberator of many of these peoples who now found their freedom. Poland, in particular, had been a target of German attentions from the end of 1915. But in many respects, that offer of freedom was a flawed one. First of all, Germany was allied to Austria-Hungary, which was itself a multinational empire, just as Russia was. And secondly, and rightly, many people suspected that even if Austria-Hungary rather than Germany was given control of these semi-independent states, Austria-Hungary would in its turn be subordinate to Germany. So much of this expansionism on Germany's side was seen as a cloak for covert imperialism, that Germany was creating both a buffer to its east and also creating a central European empire, a middle Europa, to use the German word of the time. These gains on both Germany's part and on the part of the newly emergent independent states were immediately thrown into flux by the rapidity of the collapse of the central powers in the second half of 1918, 
and ultimately by the armistice agreements of October, November 1918. The effect of the armistices was to bring into play Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. In January 1918, Woodrow Wilson had made a statement of US war aims which included the principle of national self-determination. National self-determination sounds good, but what does it actually mean? And what in particular does it mean in lands where ethnicity is mixed with territorial confusion, uncertain boundaries, where there are multiple religions juxtaposed one with the other, Catholic, Orthodox, Muslim, Jew, and also where there are competing ideologies? Are you white or are you red? Are you a supporter of the Bolsheviks? In other words, are you red? Or do you want a more authoritarian regime and even arguably a liberal regime, but certainly not a communist one? The Germans are in many ways the supporters of the whites at the beginning of 1918. But by the end of that year, it is the Allies who are the supporters of the whites, principally because they want to reactivate the Eastern Front, bring Russia back into the war in the hope that they can end the war quickly. And although that pressure is immediately eased after November 1918, it's not absolutely clear that Germany is going to agree the terms of a peace settlement the following year. So the Allies, just like the Germans with Brest-Litovsk, may need to keep the military pressure up. And in any case, the Allies are increasingly fearful of Bolshevism itself. If Bolshevism establishes itself in these newly independent countries, it may then seep westwards towards Germany and Austria-Hungary. What followed between 1919 and 1923 was a sequence of conflicts, of civil wars, of wars for frontiers, which in many respects for this part of Europe were every bit as terrible as what had happened between 1914 and 1918. One calculation has it that in the region of 4 million lose their lives in addition to the dead that we conventionally associate with the period of 1914-18. And what determines the outcomes of these struggles is, above all, military power. It's the strong men with command of forces who can settle boundaries in a way that those sitting in Paris at the peace conference cannot. Let's review these conflicts running from the north of Eastern Europe to the south. In Finland, the key figure is a former Russian general, Karl Mannerheim, a man who spoke Finnish with a Russian accent, although he clearly identified wholeheartedly with the notion of Finnish independence. The civil war there was extraordinarily brutal, a war in which Mannerheim stood for the whites and Bolsheviks who were largely indigenous Bolsheviks, Finns who had themselves embraced communism, opposed him. But it ends up with a Mannerheim success. So Finland establishes its independence. And during the course of 1920, Bolshevik Russia acknowledges the independence of the Baltic states in chronological sequence of Estonia, Lithuania and Latvia. Further south, another military strongman, Józef Pilczudski, becomes the hero of Polish independence. Pilczudski was a left-wing terrorist, a sometime train robber, whose commitment to the establishment of an independent Poland was already present before 1914. When the First World War broke out, he raised the so-called Polish Legion in order to serve the Central Powers to form part of the Austro-Hungarian army. In 1917, the Germans, aware of Pilsudski's potentially dubious loyalties, imprisoned him. 
Then on the 10th of November 1918, the day before their own armistice with the Western Allies, they released him from prison and put him on a train to Warsaw. By the 14th of November, he is the de facto head of state of a country which still has nuclear frontiers, nuclear army, nuclear government. And in Polish national history, it is his determination, his resolve, his military acumen that explains the establishment and formation of a newly independent Poland. Newly independent in the sense that this state has not existed since its partition in 1795, a division between Austria, as it was then, Prussia and Russia. The consequence of that partition meant that during the years 1914-18, Poles had served for all three armies. Poles had lost as many people as any other country, as we would now define those countries, in the First World War, but they had not fought on the same side. So it was not at all clear that with these competing loyalties pre-existing the formation of Poland, and also with competing religious affiliations, particularly between Catholic and Orthodox Christianity, that you would be able to create a unified state. In addition to Pulchutsky's own commitment, the other advantage the Poles have is the backing of France. As France looks at the shape of the post-war order, what they're concerned about is the possible resurgence of Germany. And to be able to deal with Germany on its western frontier, they also need to have a balance on Germany's eastern frontier. In 1914, that role is fulfilled by Russia. But Russia, of course, is to all intents and purposes by 1919 no longer a European power and is also, of course, not part of the order that is being established in Paris at the peace conference. So France provides military advice, military equipment, and a great deal of diplomatic backing in order to ensure that the Poles get what they want. They set about, first of all, creating an army, bringing together these soldiers who had served in disparate forces during the course of the First World War proper. And they then push northwest to eastern Silesia, East Prussia, parts of Germany. They push east towards Ukraine, and they push south into what is then Galicia. In other words, they're fighting on at least three fronts simultaneously in order to give their territory its maximum extent. What they're doing is creating a state by force of arms. They're fighting the German Freikorps, the residual forces of the German army that are still acting essentially as freebooters, living off the land, carrying violence with them. They fight Czechs, they fight Ukrainians, all in an endeavor to create as big a Polish state as they can. And what happens in Paris is a ratification of what is achieved by force of arms. The biggest existential struggle that this new Polish state confronts, however, is from none of those peoples. It is, of course, from the Russians themselves, because Russia regards Poland still as an integral part of its state. And the Bolsheviks in that respect are no different from the Tsarists. In 1920, the Poles found themselves pushed back towards their own capital, towards Warsaw, and in an epic battle, turned the Red Army back. The battle for Warsaw then becomes the iconic moment for the establishment of an independent Poland. Further south again, in southeastern Europe, in the Balkans, force of arms had more to do with the outcome of the First World War than did the negotiations going on in Paris. 
After all, this was where the First World War had begun in 1914. It was where Franz Ferdinand had been assassinated, where the war had broken out between Austria, Hungary and Serbia. And in many interpretations, it was where the First World War ended. At the end of September 1918, Bulgaria had sought an armistice with the Allies. And the commander-in-chief of the Allied forces in southeastern Europe on the Macedonian front, Franche Despery, a French general, aspired to drive north that winter to Belgrade, onto Vienna. He thought he'd be the first French general to enter Vienna since Napoleon had done so in 1809, and finally to Berlin itself. The trouble with this ambition was that his army was made up not just of French and British soldiers, but also of Italians, Greeks, and Serbs. And they all had interests in the region. Their interests were located in the Balkans. Italy hoped to control Albania. Greece hoped to push into Macedonia itself and gain particularly from Bulgaria. The Serbs wanted to re-establish not only their own authority over Serbia, but to expand Serbia in the process. So each of these regional powers will fight to establish what they want in the region but they have no interest in the wider war. They have no interest in carrying the war onto Vienna, let alone Berlin. The Serbs regained their homeland and took the moment to expand it. It became known as the Kingdom of the Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, and in 1929, better known as Yugoslavia. The Yugoslav state is essentially, therefore, a greater Serbia, and this will present problems for the future of Yugoslavia with conflict initially in Bosnia, in the 1990s. The biggest loser of the central powers in this carve-up of the Balkans was Hungary. In 1867, after what was then the Habsburg Empire had been defeated by Prussia and other German states, the Habsburg Empire is remodeled into a dual monarchy. What that means essentially is that the Austrian emperor, who was also king of Hungary, ruled over two separate states held together by the emperor and by a common army. With the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1918, Hungary declares its independence, settles its own armistice on the 13th of November 1918, and is then subject to its own peace treaty, the Treaty of Trianon. The Treaty of Trianon, in many ways, is far more draconian than is the Treaty of Versailles with Germany. Hungary is left with about one-third of the territory it had administered before 1914. Much of that territory, indeed, was held by people who did not speak Magyar, who would not necessarily have identified themselves as Hungarian. But the Treaty of Trianon still rankles in Hungary to this day as a peace treaty which is extraordinarily vicious in its implementation. The principal beneficiaries from this division of Hungary are the Czechs, the Yugoslavs, and the Romanians. And you can understand Hungary's frustration. The Czechs, after all, were part of the Habsburg Empire themselves. They had fought in the Habsburg army during the First World War. Bohemia was right at the heart of Austria. The Romanians had been defeated by Germany and by Austria-Hungary, had then re-entered the war very late in the day. Why should they be beneficiaries? They hadn't really fought for anything that they were given. And the only one that you could really understand 
were the Yugoslavs, who at least were embodied by a Slav identity, which had, from before 1914, aspired to a true independence from the Habsburg Empire. By comparison, Bulgaria came off remarkably likely. Under the terms of the Treaty of Neuilly, the second of the peace treaties signed in Paris on the 27th of November 1919, Bulgaria loses Thrace to Greece, but otherwise is left remarkably intact. The treaty's simplicity leads to a comparatively quick resolution, as opposed to the Treaty of Trianon, which is not signed until June 1920. As a result of this sequence of military events combined with the negotiations going on in Paris, the map of Eastern and Central Europe is fundamentally redrawn between 1919 and 1920, and a whole clutch of new states emerged from Finland in the north through the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, on to Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary and finally Yugoslavia. Here are states which become independent, but during the course of the 20th century have extraordinarily troubled histories as they settle down into their new identities. These newly independent states were not immediately supported with social and economic aid, with the sort of plan that after the Second World War, the Marshall Plan, would help the frontiers created within Europe to stabilise. There are internal rivalries. Many of the clashes between whites and reds are not fully resolved. There is incipient fascism, incipient communism, and many of the ethnic identities are not fully resolved. Pilzudski, for example, carries out a coup in 1926 and rules Poland in an essentially authoritarian style for the next decade. Externally, their frontiers are still disputed between themselves and, of course, between them and their stronger neighbours, Germany to the west and Russia to the east. These will be the circumstances which, in the 1930s, Hitler can exploit, beginning with the Anschluss, the entry to Austria in 1938, and its incorporation within the German Reich, and carrying on with war with Czechoslovakia and with Poland in 1939. All of these states, with the exception of Finland, come under the control of Germany during the course of the Second World War, come under German and Nazi occupation. And after the Second World War, all of them, with the exception of Finland once again, will come under the control of the Soviet Union. It's not until the end of the Cold War that these states regain their independence, but they do so in ways which also bring up some of those old tensions. Czechoslovakia splits into the Czech Republic and an independent Slovakia. They do so without violence. Yugoslavia, the old kingdom of Serbs, Slovenes and Croats, falls apart with considerable violence. The other states hold together. So when the centenary of the end of the First World War was marked in 2018, these states of Eastern and Central Europe saw it as a moment of victory, even those who had been on the losing side, such as the Hungarians and the Czechs, because it was the end of the First World War that they established their independence as states for the first time. Next time, we shall explore the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the end of the First World War and its implications for Turkey and the Middle East. That was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn. You have been listening to Peacemaking in Paris, a Chrome Radio production for UCL Institute of Education. The producer was Katrina Oliphant, with sound design by Chris Sharp. <laughs>